Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. We're going to go actually to the Gospel of John. I know you're probably already going for Luke, but um, seeing that it is Palm Sunday, I uh, wanted to look at this passage together this morning as we remember the final days of Christ's earthly ministry and um, just the amazing events that happened. And so John chapter 12, and we will uh, start reading at verse 12. Of course, this event is recorded by all the Gospel writers, um, but we will... Look at John's account of Palm Sunday together. So if I invite you to stand, please, with me as we read John 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him." So we have John's account of Palm Sunday. And so now as we take time to love the Lord with our minds, meditate upon his word, um, let the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you, Lord, acknowledging... um, Zenon said, Lord, you are the creator of all things, and Lord, we are your creatures. We are made in your image. And so, God, we are looking to you not only for um, all of our provisions, but even now, Lord, as we try to understand your word, we try to see Christ more clearly as the true king. Lord, that your spirit would give us understanding. Father, that you would show us uh, ways in which we are not living um, as though he is king of our lives. And God, ways that we can reach out uh, with this message for those 
that are also made in your image, Lord, but have not yielded to King Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would be honored in the words that I speak, that they'd be in accordance with your word and God, that they would be for the building up of your people. And Father, we ask that if there are those here this morning that have not received Christ as Lord and Savior, Father, that they would hear this as good news this morning. Lord, that you would give them understanding that your spirit would work in their hearts. And Lord, that you would be praised among your people. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his obedience, for his suffering, for his, uh, Lord, perfect life and death and resurrection that we might be set free and uh, be restored unto you, Lord. We pray this now in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So likely we've all heard and read the story of Palm Sunday many times. Um, it's something that even as we see the children participating in, it is always uh, a highlight as we consider uh, the, the gospel story and, and as Jesus continues to draw nearer to the cross uh, this is one of the only times that we see Jesus publicly displaying his kingship in, in this, this way that would have to the people seemed like a, a fitting um, act for a king. Many times Jesus was doing the opposite of what they thought he should do as king. They tried to crown him and he withdraws and they, they try to get him to come to the feasts and to make himself known and he withdraws and then comes at a later time, but this time we see Jesus riding into, uh, towards Jerusalem in this very messianic, prophetic way on the colt of a donkey. But I want us to ask the question as we consider this story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, um, what do we learn about him? What kind of king is he? As we consider this passage this morning, we, I want us to ask the question, what kind of king is Jesus Christ? And, and what should our response be to that? Um, there are many things I'm sure we could draw out of this passage, out of this story. And of course, because we're limited for time, we'll just try to look at a few. And as we consider the context in which Jesus rides, in which he is declaring his uh, rightly placed as the king of Israel, you have to understand that there is intense hostility and animosity against Jesus Christ. And if you back up just a little bit from our passage this morning, we'll see one of the first things that we learn uh, about Jesus is that he is a king who reigns in the midst of opposition, in the midst of struggle. Jesus Christ is a king who reigns even in the midst of opposition and struggle. We find in just the previous verse 11 um, that the people had just witnessed the, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus comes to the tomb where he has been buried and he calls Lazarus' name and Lazarus comes out of the tomb still wrapped in grave clothes and, and, and the people are amazed. They have never seen a miracle like this. And Yet, there are those in the crowd that are not impressed. They, they uh, do not believe upon Christ, but actually they harden their hearts, and they begin plotting to kill not only Jesus, but we're told in verse uh, 10 and, and 11, so the chief priests made plans to, to put Lazarus to death, 
because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so the, the hatred and the animosity against Jesus Christ at this point had reached a fever pitch among the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And they are so bent on destroying him and destroying his message that they are willing to put um, a man like Lazarus, who was simply the recipient of the power of Christ, they're willing to put him to death just to silence the praise and the, the um, acknowledgement that Jesus Christ must be the Messiah for who else could do such things. Jesus Christ is a king who reigns in the midst of opposition. And uh, we find this throughout, even from the time of the fall of mankind, that we serve a God who is a God who is reigning over man's rebellion, reigning over man's uh, desire to destroy um, not only one another, but ultimately to destroy any acknowledgement of God in the world. Christ is unafraid of this opposition. You could imagine Jesus knowing full well the, the intense hatred that, that the people, the, the leaders, those in power have against him, that there, there perhaps would have been a temptation in, in a natural sense to withdraw, to, to retreat, to maybe go into uh, hiding, or maybe it would be time, you know, we would say to take a vacation and to leave the, the province that Jesus needs to let things cool down before he rides into Jerusalem. And yet, unafraid of this opposition, Jesus rides in and knowing full well he's declaring himself as the king of kings. Jesus in Luke 13 compared the kingdom of God like leaven in the earth. And, and this is the picture of Christ coming into the world of darkness. And I haven't done a lot of, of baking, but um, I think we can all understand the picture of leaven, that you have a lump of dough that might seem uh, very large in comparison to the small amount of leaven that is going to be put into it to cause it to rise. And it is as though Jesus, knowing the power of the Spirit within him, knowing the power of God through the gospel that was going to be preached after he rose again, he rides into this lump of, of, of hostile dough, if you will, and, and he knows that in time this message, his work on the cross, is going to penetrate humanity and is going to begin to transform humanity from the inside out. And so he is unafraid of the opposition. And in fact, one of the most amazing things about this time um, in Christ, and we see this in the book of Acts very clearly in uh, Peter's message. If you want to flip over just for a minute to the book of Acts. It would seem that after this point, Jesus loses control and that he is somehow um, outdone by the plotting of mankind. But we know that that is not the case. Um, in Acts 2, verse 22, Peter is preaching and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wondrous signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23 this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so there is a sense in which Jesus Christ, even as men who are, are sinful in their hearts, they have hatred, they desire to kill him, and they are guilty before God for that sin, but there is still a sense in which Christ is still reigning in the midst of that, and even in their sinful act, he remains the king, he remains God, he remains in control, and the Father is even using the rebellion of these men to accomplish his plan. We serve a king who reigns even in the midst of hostility, of struggle, and of pain. And it's one of the most difficult things for us to wrestle with as we consider the world we live in now, and we witness all kinds of struggle, of pain, of, of sin that seems to be reigning, it seems to be gaining the upper hand, but we must remind ourselves, we must have a fresh picture in our minds of Christ riding into Jerusalem in the very midst of this kind of hostility. And as ambassadors of Christ, as, as his representatives in the world, we are the agents of light by his spirit through which he is, is reigning in the world. We are because of what Christ has done, because of the empowering of his spirit and the message that we've been entrusted, we are the manifestation of his reign upon the earth, his kingdom that is, that is advancing, the, the assurance of the final day when he will return and will abolish all sin, all lawlessness. We, as his ambassadors, are the manifestation of his reign, the church, the pillar and, and buttress of the truth is what we're told in Ephesians. We are to stand in the reign and power of Christ through what he's accomplished. The light does not fear the darkness, for it cannot overcome it, but rather it rides into the darkness and it pushes it back, confident of the power to overcome. And this is the, the picture of Christ unafraid, and it's like what John said in John 1, that he is the light coming into the world, the light of men, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so Jesus rides in with this kingly confidence as the conqueror, the victor. And this is comforting to us. This is one of the most comforting uh, attributes of Christ, his sovereignty, his reign, even over struggle and darkness. Internally, we might look at ourselves and we know internally there are times when, when sin seems just right at the door, ready to devour, ready to lead us astray, and we, we face doubts in our own mind about our faith, about, the, the, about God who, who we profess to serve, and, and we may have times of, of darkness where, you know, like if you were driving in the snowstorm this past week, and, and uh, the visibility is about two inches in front of your vehicle, and you're not quite sure which side of the road you're on, and sometimes life can seem that way. But you must keep before you this picture of Christ riding into the midst of the opposition, reigning in the midst of struggle. It is a tremendous comfort to his people to know he is still in control. He will finish the work he's begun. Jesus told his followers, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
And so we need to take heart. Even as we look at the political uh, scene around us, the global scene, we can be tempted to despair. It can, it can seem overwhelming to us as though maybe evil is going to have the upper hand. Maybe that, 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 the, the, the gospel, the light of, of God's word is actually going to be snuffed out of Canada and we will become, um, we will become offenders to the state. We just, we don't know, but we must hold before ourselves this picture of Christ reigning even in the midst of mounting hostility. To see Jesus stand before Pilate who thought he had some power over Jesus and was, was, was telling Jesus, don't you realize who I am? Don't you realize that, that I have the power to, to put you to death right now or to, to pardon you? And Jesus would turn to him in, in John 19.11 and rebuke him and say, you have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. And as Christians, we have this understanding that Christ is supreme. He is in control. We don't always understand why he allows things to happen. We don't always understand how this is going to work for good in the end uh, as we seek to follow him, but we trust him. We trust his ability to bring it to completion. No man, no king, no politician, no judge on the earth or in the courts of man ever has the upper hand over Jesus Christ. They are at his mercy, and any authority that man has is an authority that they are borrowing from God, and they will give an account. Let us see Christ who rides into opposition and hostility as the king of kings. Secondly, we also see from this account of Christ that he is a king who is humble, and he is the king of the humble and the ordinary. Jesus Christ is the humble king of humble and ordinary subjects. I mean, just imagine as we think about who Christ is, even before his incarnation, the glory and the splendor that was all his in the presence of his Father. All beauty, all light, all people, all plants and stars from the, from the supernova to the small ants that are burrowing into the earth are all brought forth by Christ. They are His. He owns them all. And yet you see this Creator, you see this ruler riding upon a donkey, a colt of a donkey. And he is surrounded not by the powerful and the influential, not by the magnificent and the beautiful. He is surrounded by the ordinary. He is surrounded by the rejects of society upon the marginalized and the plain. He was born in a stable. He was raised in obscurity. He was brought up in poverty. He was joined by fishermen and tax collectors with no place to lay his head. Jesus Christ is the humble king. He is the king to the lowly and to the needy. You contrast this with Rome. Um, If a Roman general, as I understand, was off in war on a foreign land, and they, say, had a great victory, and and they had killed at least 5,000 enemy troops, then Rome would parade them back into the city and celebrate their victory, and there would be all the pomp of his military might, the horses and the chariots. He would be in his full armor with a robe, and they would bring behind them all the spoils of war and all the captors, and oftentimes at the end of this great display of Rome's power, they would force some of the prisoners to fight 
animals to entertain the citizens of Rome. And so I imagine as the Roman people looked at Jesus riding into Jerusalem, they probably would have scoffed. They probably would have thought, really, this is the king of Israel? This is the one who is going to overthrow our empire? And there no doubt would have been very little fear from them at this point because they would have looked at the the lowliness of this Messiah, the lowliness of this king and his subjects. Matthew Henry said, Christ has chosen the weak and the foolish things and is honored more by the multitude than by the magnificence of his followers. For he values men by their souls, not by their names and titles of honor. Christ is a humble king to the humble and the ordinary. And even as Christ rides, he knows exactly what he's riding into. He is not riding into greater and greater degrees of of, uh, popularity and wealth and luxury. He is riding to his death. As Jesus would have been coming over the hill into Jerusalem, there would have been, uh, from the other side of Jerusalem, into the Sheep Gate, there would have been hundreds of sheep coming into the city for the sacrifice of Passover and for the Day of Atonement. And it would have been, on the one hand, the lambs that had been commanded by God to be sacrificed for the sins of the people, and yet what they couldn't see is at the same time the Lamb of God is riding into the city to lay down His life for all those who would believe upon Him. This is our King. He is lowly. He is humble. And He is willing to receive anyone who will see their need and come to Him. Thinking about the, uh, the Old Testament and all the different times that the firstborn was spared has been something that has, I guess, struck me this past week. And you think about um, Abraham about to offer his son on the altar and then God at the last minute stopping him and saying, no, Abraham, don't. I see that you're obedient. I see your faith. And he spares him with the ram that was caught in the thicket. And later, as God prepares to deliver his people from Israel, he would spare the firstborn. How? He would tell them, the way that you're going to spare your firstborn on this night is you kill the lamb, the Passover lamb, and you take that blood and you rub it, you put it on your doorpost, you put it on the, on the lintel, and as the angel of death comes down and prepares to strike the firstborn, yours will be spared by the blood of the lamb. But now God sends his own son into Jerusalem and he will not be spared. He will not have a sacrifice to replace him, for he himself is the sacrifice. He is the firstborn who is not spared, but lays his life down as a ransom for many. And as we think about those who Christ gathered around himself, it should give us tremendous comfort and and confidence to also come to Christ and to receive from Him. Nobody should be able to say in this world that, well, I am too, too you know, ignorant, I'm, I'm, I'm too poor, I'm too sick, I'm too broken, I'm too diseased. There is no one that is too lowly to come to this King. In fact, it is only those who see their need that will come. Jesus said, I did not come for the righteous. I did not come for those who see themselves as well. I came for the broken. I came for those who need a physician. Because he is the lowly king to the lowly. His own disciples, as I already said, and you know, 
were fishermen, they were tradesmen, some of them were tax collectors despised by society as crooks, prostitutes, some religious people we know, like Nicodemus, even Paul later. So it's not saying that, that if, you, if you do have you know, education or if you do have influence, you, you can't come either. That's not the point. But it, it is that most certainly we see the weak and the ordinary and the ignorant coming to Christ. Jesus Christ is the only king that I've ever heard of that prided himself in in choosing the broken, the needy, the helpless, the weak. He seeks to build a people not from the elites and the impressive, not from the wise and the influential, but from those who know they need a Savior. And an amazing parable Jesus told you. Remember the story in Matthew 22. Jesus uses this as an illustration of his kingdom and the parable of the wedding feast. And you could imagine a king with power, with endless amounts of food and wine and comfort. And he says that he's going to have a wedding feast for his son. And he calls all those royal servants in the palace to come and to enjoy the the time of celebration and all of the uh, generosity of the king. But then we are told that they... They all had excuses for why they couldn't come. Someone had, uh, they were preparing their oxen. They had farming to do. They were about to prepare a sacrifice. And, and it says they paid no attention, went off one to his farm, one to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. Then as the king was angry, he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to look at the guests, he saw a man who had no wedding garment and said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And we see this theme throughout the the life of Christ, that it is the broken, it is the needy, it is the sick, it is the desperate, that often are the ones to see Christ for who he is. And so let us come Bring your struggles, bring your brokenness, bring your, your disease, bring your uh, ignorance and come to Christ as the humble king and he will in no wise cast you out. So we see that Christ is a king who rules in the midst of opposition and, and uh, animosity. We see that Christ is the humble king to the humble and the ordinary. And then thirdly, We'll close with, we see that Jesus Christ is the promised king of Israel and the descendant of David. All of these things that are happening um, that we are very familiar with, the waving of the palm branches, the riding of the colt, even the cries of the people of Israel, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Uh, These are all messianic pictures of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah who was supposed to come. Uh, Zenon read a portion from Psalm uh, 118, 
And uh, part of this is quoting directly from that messianic psalm of the one who would come to deliver God's people, who would come to save them, to be their salvation. And we see that in the minds of the Jewish people, as Jesus is riding upon this colt, he is fulfilling the messianic prophecy of the Davidic king who would reign forever, who would restore God's people and deliver them from bondage. Um, Not only that, but the other part of him riding on the colt is a direct quote from Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So hundreds of years later, Zechariah prophesied that the king of Israel, the Messiah, the final Davidic-like king, would come riding on a donkey, riding on the colt. Of a donkey, and Jesus knew full well what he was doing when he told his disciples to go and get the donkey and prepare everything, and he was going to ride it. He knew full well what he was communicating to the people of Israel, and no doubt many of them also understood. What are these symbols in the life of Israel? The palm branches that uh, we see some replicas here. Palm branches were a symbol of victory. And uh, they are sometimes associated with the feasts of the Lord, particularly the Feast of Tabernacles. They were to build these little tents of palm branches, and it was a, a prophetic way of looking to the day when God would tabernacle with his people. But they also became in the life of Israel uh, symbols of, of, of victory, of, of honoring someone who was victorious. And as they wave these branches, they are saying essentially to Christ, here is the victor. Here is the one who is going to deliver us. Even the word Hosanna, um, we hear words like this, and we're like, I don't even know what that means. Uh, Hosanna means save now. And so in a sense, as the people see Christ riding into Jerusalem, they are crying out, they are praying, save now, deliver us now, save us, O Lord. It is a plea for deliverance, it is a plea for salvation, and all of these are very much tied up in that messianic Jewish king that was to come. So what does that mean for us if Jesus is the true king of Israel, if he is come to fulfill the prophetic prophecies of old? What about us who are not Jews? Is it right that we claim him as king? Is he truly the king of all people? I think we get a glimpse um, into this. John drops these subtle but glorious clues even as the Pharisees are watching this unfold, and you could just imagine the, the frustration and the anger. But I think even in their frustration, they utter a form of, of prophecy in that they say in verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And then at the end, they say, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. 
And immediately John includes a little portion um, in his account of who that is coming to seek the king. Who is wanting to, to see Christ to meet him. It is not Jews, it is Greeks, it is non-Jews are coming to pay homage to the king. They, they have a desire to see him. And this is a foretaste of what was about to happen as the, the, the gospel goes not only out to Jerusalem, but to all nations. Christ is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he has come to deliver, as we're told in Revelation, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so, yes, we are to be desiring that the nations come to Christ But in all of this, there is still a sense in which if you are not a Jew, you cannot claim Jesus as your king. If you are not of the descendant of Abraham, you have no part in the kingdom of God. And Paul would make a, a very big issue of this because it's important to understand that if God's promises to Israel fail... If, the, if that Jesus Christ as the king of Israel fails to deliver Israel, then what kind of king is he? What hope do we have as non-Jews of him delivering us? And it is a massive problem for the Jewish people and for Paul. And Paul answers it in this way in Romans 2.28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from God, uh, sorry, his praise is not from man, but from God. And so the answer to this potential problem of the failure of Israel to see their king and to be delivered A few short years later, 70 AD, Jerusalem would be sacked by Rome, burned, the temple destroyed, and and someone would look at that and say, surely God has failed Israel. And yet Paul would say, the key to this mystery is that not all Israel is Israel. There is a spiritual Israel. Christ is the king of the true Jew. Those who do not merely have an outward circumcision as a covenant sign, but have had the circumcision of their heart by the Spirit, they are the true Jews. They are the true people of God. Paul would say in Romans 9, 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descendant from Israel belong to Israel And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It is those who, like Abraham, place faith in Jesus Christ. They are the true children of Abraham. And this was the great error of the Jews. They assumed because of their physical lineage to Abraham, they were secure. They were untouchable. They, they could never be under God's wrath, but only his favor because of their physical connection to Abraham. And yet Jesus would tell them, um, even as they, they tell Jesus later, to, to silence these ones who are praising you. On Palm Sunday, they say, Jesus, make them be quiet. And Jesus would respond and say, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks themselves will cry out with praise. Which is very reminiscent of what John told the Pharisees. Do not think because you are the sons of Abraham that you have any place. For God could raise up from himself from these stones sons. 
if he so pleases. And in many ways, that's exactly what God has done. From our stony hearts, from our rebellion, from our hardness, from our unbelief, God takes that heart of stone as he promised in Ezekiel and he removes it. And in the place of that stone heart, we are given a heart of flesh. As we profess faith and believe upon Jesus Christ, we are affirming that we are the true Jew and Christ is our King. And so in many ways, God has raised up children from stone as we stand here as a testimony and a a tribute to the gospel going to the nations and the Greeks that would come to see Christ. And as a little side thought before we close, um, as we even consider Israel today, and this is, you know, gets a little bit controversial potentially, but we need to understand that the only hope for Israel is to see their king. There is no other option. There is no other road for Israel. We don't just say Israel gets a, you know, a free out-of-jail card because of their heritage. We need to pray that Israel would see Christ their king and repent and believe upon him. And so I, I, don't, I think we need to be careful of, of putting Israel today on a pedestal as though they are somehow um, not responsible for the gospel message and respond to it. They are not responsible to, to submit themselves to Christ. We need to be consistent in the gospel message to Israel, but humble, realizing that we are the unnatural branch grafted in. And as Paul said, do not be arrogant towards Israel, but understand them rightly. They have rejected their king according to the flesh, and we should pray that they would see him for who he is. And um, we will close then just to encourage you to see Christ who reigns in the midst of opposition in our lives, in our town, in our country, in the world. He is still king, that we see Christ who is humble and lowly and that we don't ever use our brokenness, use our sin, don't ever use your inability or your ignorance as an excuse not to come to Christ, but come to him knowing that he himself is ready to receive all who will come. And lastly, then, let us rejoice that we have been grafted in, that Jesus is the promised king, and that he has given entrance into those in the highways and byways to come into his wedding feast. And so if you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Christ, I urge you to call out to him, to confess your sin, to to lay aside the agendas of this world and come to Christ as the King that He is. For He went to the cross and died that we might be delivered. He is that Passover Lamb through which we are saved. And as we will celebrate on uh, next week, Sunday, He did not stay in the grave but was raised in victory. Are you looking to Christ as your Savior and King this morning? No doubt in the crowd that day there were those that paid lip service. They were caught up in the excitement and grabbed a palm branch and and paid homage to Christ. Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But internally, there was no love for him. There was no real faith. There was no real delight in Christ himself, more in the blessings of his presence and the, the, the signs and wonders that he did. Is that you this morning? Have you merely paid lip service to Christ? Have you simply gone through the motions, but internally there is no desire for him? There is no love for him? Internally, your allegiance is elsewhere? Be careful that you are not deceived, thinking that he is your king when in fact you have no part of him. Test yourself. The true subjects of the king spiritually rejoice to take up the palm branch. And at the mention of the name of Christ, they, they are filled with joy and delight And in their spirit, day after day, they are crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of Kings. Not only for this soul, you are the only only hope of my salvation, Jesus Christ. But as you look around you and you see a lost world, you cry, Hosanna, save now, Jesus. Use me to bring these people to see you and to worship you. Are you truly a subject of the king. Let us be those who worship him in spirit and truth. And if you're not, I urge you to do that. Talk with someone who can help you understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. Follow in believer's baptism um, and seek the king who reigns. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. I thank you for Lord, the tremendous mercy that you have shown us that we uh, who were not a people have been brought in, Lord, to this kingdom of light and of glory and the hope of final deliverance and the glorification of all things, Lord. I pray that we would rejoice in this, but Lord, help us to also be bold and courageous in a day that needs to hear about the King of Kings and needs to understand that unless they receive from him his gift of forgiveness, they will face his wrath. Lord, we don't want them to be among those who bow the knee only because their legs have been broken and they have no choice. We want them to bow with hearts that love the king, that rejoice at his coming. And so we ask that you use us, that you guide us, and you work within us, Lord, um, in the days to come. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.